Hello, and welcome to another episode of Answers for Ambassadors with me, David Vogel. Before we return to uh, our discussion of life's work, the uh, book by the quote-unquote Christian abortionist, uh, I wanted to pause and uh, just make a quick uh, note about uh, this podcast series, a little bit of a change for us. Uh, I have sort of an exciting announcement, actually. Um, Lord willing, I'm going to be uh, going to seminary uh, to pursue an MDiv degree uh, next year. And even though I think that's going to be a great blessing to my ministry work in the long run, uh, it's going to require a little bit of uh, reshuffling of the schedule in the short run, uh, as I'm going to be taking on an extra job uh, during the coming months to uh, get on a good financial footing for seminary, and then uh, you know during seminary itself, of course, uh, <laughs> they say that seminary can be a bit of a time commitment. So uh, I anticipate scaling back the schedule for answers for ambassadors. Uh, I'm honestly not exactly sure what uh, what it's going to look like. For the moment, I'm shooting for episodes every other week. Um, I don't know if that's going to be realistic or not. Uh, I guess we'll kind of all find out together. Um, but we'll uh, we'll certainly try to uh, continue the podcast uh, if somewhat less frequently. Um, but that being noted, uh, let's turn then to uh, today's uh, material, where we're returning to that question of what is it. Uh, so we're we're in the middle of looking at. Uh, basically the question of the morality of abortion. Um, As we have seen in this book thus far, uh, Dr. Willie Parker has uh, spoken of abortion as a sort of uh, sacred moral privilege that uh, every woman should be able to make this choice under whatever circumstances she feels necessitated, and nobody else has a position to judge or to say you ought not do that. Uh, still less to put any sort of legal barrier in her way. And yet, uh, as we saw last week, even Dr. Parker himself uh, has certain moral qualms about abortion in certain circumstances. So, for example, uh, Dr. Parker personally refuses to do abortions after 25 weeks though he does refer on to other doctors. Apparently, he's uh, <laughs> he, he, he's sufficiently convinced of the immorality of doing the abortion himself, but he doesn't mind sending you on to somebody else. Uh, but anyway, he does have at least some moral qualm about uh, later-term abortions, uh, and he is quite adamant that he refuses abortion if he feels that the woman is being coerced by somebody else. In other words, even the abortion doctor recognizes that his own rhetoric notwithstanding, we can't simply say abortion in every possible situation. We have to evaluate the circumstances. And that's essentially what we uh, began doing in our last episode, as we looked at the question of, again, what is it? What is it first? What is the fetus? Secondly, what is a pregnancy? And then thirdly, flowing out of those two answers, what is an abortion? To evaluate the circumstances at play, recognizing the fact that Dr. Parker brings home so, uh, you know, so, so vividly that uh, an abortion may be a solution of sorts to a very difficult situation. 
that, that there are women who find themselves in agonizingly, impossibly, unimaginably difficult, painful situations, sometimes through no fault of their own, and even if through some fault of their own, haven't you and I made similar mistakes? Uh, so, so much compassion is in order for a woman who is contemplating, you know, who finds herself in the situation where she feels that she must contemplate abortion. But if there are other circumstances at play, if there are other, if there's some other factor that is more important than even the problem which abortion could solve, then abortion may not be an acceptable solution. Even, again, as Dr. Parker himself recognizes in certain narrow circumstances. So, then again, what is it? And uh, we looked at, last week, Dr. Parker's uh, brief attempt to refute, he says, quote-unquote, scientifically, to refute um, various, what he calls, pro-life, or he doesn't call it pro-life after, as we mentioned before, he calls pro-life people antis, so various uh, anti-myths, which uh, he argues are used to misinform women and to uh, discourage them from abortion. So last uh, week, we looked at the so-called myth that life begins at conception. And we saw that ultimately, uh, Dr. Parker had to resort to just utterly vaporous rhetoric, uh, mumbling about the process of life and such things, uh, in order to avoid the painfully simple and obvious fact that what is in the womb is, scientifically speaking, using the seven criteria that are usually used to uh, determine if something is a living organism, what is in the womb is in fact a living organism. That it has, at least in some rudimentary form, uh, all the qualifications of life, which we saw last week were homeostasis, that is being able to at least somewhat regulate your own internal environment, to maintain a constant state, it has organization of cells, it has uh, metabolism, it grows, uh, it adapts to its environment, it responds to stimuli, and it is capable of reproduction. Now again, uh, just like any other baby animal, uh, it is not, uh, you know, for example, the reproductive capacity. Uh, you know, a, a, a fetus is not able to reproduce, but neither is a three-year-old. Uh, the, the, these criteria speak to uh, capabilities which are inherent in the organism, even if not yet fully developed. And so we saw that really just objectively, scientifically, to use a word that Dr. Parker likes to use, plainly, clearly, what is in the womb is in fact a living organism. Now also, and really this part is undebatable, it is human, fundamentally. And you can just test the DNA. Uh, you know, if, if you're at a murder scene, uh, a, uh, you know, a CSI investigator can figure out if DNA is from a human being or a duck or you, know, you, you, you can analyze you know, well, what kind of DNA is this and plainly the fetus is a human which means then that, that the fetus what, what is in the womb is a human living organism which seems like it is very pressing information 
that we ought to bring back to evaluate that question of, is an abortion an acceptable solution even to a very difficult personal problem? Uh, again, that we have to look at the bigger picture of what's what's being done in this abortion, even if the problem is real. What's going on? Well, it sounds like what's going on is we are ending the life of a living human organism, which is generally called murder. But Dr. Parker is not done yet in his attempt to, to wiggle, wriggle out of what appears to be the obvious, uh, the obvious answer. And so he brings up a second... Uh, <laughs> anti-myth, uh, a second pro-life myth, the idea that, quote, the fetus is a person. Now, before I continue at all, let me just note that, the, uh, that, that the, it is fascinating to me the amount of metaphysical, philosophical abstraction which is brought to bear on this question of what the fetus is in order to justify abortion. And we, we literally get into the, the realm of, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of philosophical meandering, trying to define personhood. You know, what, what is a person? How is that distinct? And you know, what, what makes personhood? Um, I've literally had a guy try to explain to me that, that even if you have a, a, a human organism, uh, that personhood doesn't kick, come into effect until the fetus draws its first breath. And in fact, this particular gentleman somehow tied that in with the idea from Genesis that God breathed life into Adam, and therefore that made Adam a living human being, a living human person. And so somehow just breathing made uh, made the fetus a living human being. Um, which I, I don't know if you're holding your breath, if that means I can murder you. I was somewhat unclear again on the on the precise metaphysical implications of this theory of personhood. <laughs> but it is it is just uh, spectacular the amount of rhetorical philosophical contortions that that are brought to bear on this question under the increasingly just just generally in our country, increasingly people realize that what is in the fetus, I'm sorry, what is in the womb, is a living human organism. And that ought to be the end of the discussion, but no, now we retreat into questions of personhood. Now, I will say that as a general rule, whenever somebody starts talking about, is this human organism a person? You should probably run, because they're probably about to do something horrible. The places where we find debate about whether this human organism is a person is where, for example, we're trying to justify slavery or the Holocaust. You know, there genuinely were, you know, in, in the uh, American South, this sort of, you know, again, philosophical debate about exactly what made, you know, the African uh, a person. And maybe uh, maybe they, they didn't feel pain quite the same way. Maybe they didn't uh, reason quite the same way. Are they really the same, you know, quite as much of a person as the white man? And lo and behold, we have now a justification for all the horrid things done to the African slaves. Uh, so so <laughs> just as, as a rule, if somebody says, is that human organism actually a person? They're probably about to do something awful to that human organism. Just, just a good principle for us to bear in mind. Uh, but let's let's go to the particulars of this specific case and see what uh, argument Dr. Parker is going to make and how we can fruitfully respond.
So, um, he starts, he's, he's not a big fan of sonograms, uh, which is not surprising, uh, seeing as sonograms have been arguably uh, the single most effective tool in changing uh, cultural opinion about abortion. People tend to trust the evidence of their eyes. Um, but, Dr. Parker argues, that a sonogram is in fact misleading that what we think we see, we're not really seeing. He writes, quote, Sonogram technology first developed in the late 1950s and in wide use by the early 2000s allowed doctors, and ultimately their patients, to look inside the black box, by which he means, you know, the previously uh, somewhat opaque, uh, you know, what's going on within the womb. So to look inside the black box and, as a consequence, to impose person-like attributes on even the youngest fetuses. The heart-stopping 1965 spread of in-utero photos by Life magazine showed the anthropomorphizing process of human development and enhanced the moral cloudiness of the abortion issue. He says that uh, continuing a few few lines down, um, that the fetus has human features, fingers, eyelids, toes, ankles, only enhances the illusion that this is already a baby. But to refer to the fetus in utero as a baby is inaccurate. It reflects a hope, not a reality. In reference to a fetus, baby is a cultural term, not a scientific one. He continues on to be particularly indignant at the famous uh, pro-life uh, film called The Silent Scream, uh, which shows a abortion uh, being carried out uh, on a roughly 12-week-old uh, fetus. And uh, he argues that the uh, narrator is misleading. As the narrator describes the fetus, uh, thrashing around, recoiling, uh, even screaming um, in fear or pain. And Dr. Parker states, quote, uh, Fact check. The brain of a 12-week fetus is not developed enough to feel pain or fear or to deliberately control the movement of limbs. More on that in a second. Uh, but for the moment, the last objection in this uh, campaign of imposing human-like features on the fetus, the last objection that Dr. Parker raises is to what he describes as an entirely unethical and immoral conflation as the antis have manufactured plastic models of six-week fetuses to use as visual aids in their protests. These don't look like fetuses at all. They look like teeny tiny little pink and brown dolls. In reality, a six-week-old fetal pole and gestational sac are as big as a lima bean. It has the earliest notable cardiac activity, but an undeveloped heart and a very rudimentary circulatory system. But the antis are falsely leading people to believe that a fetus at six weeks looks like a baby with all the component parts that a human being has. This is more than manipulation. It's a blatant lie. Now, it is worth noting, by the way, that not only uh, we're not only talking about six-week-old fetuses, that in fact Dr. Parker is willing quite to abort a 24-week-old fetus and six days, uh, which suggests that human-like uh, appearance is really not the de determining characteristic 
that leads Dr. Parker to be willing to abort or not. But at any rate, uh, what what are the uh, you know what what's the substance of this? argument that Dr. Parker is making, this argument that somehow, despite being plainly a living human organism, the fetus is not a quote-unquote person, whatever that rather philosophical uh, abstraction means. Uh, Essentially, I think practically in this case, it means it's a living human organism that we get to do horrible things to. We get to kill it because it has something, something that makes it not a person whatever that is. Well, what would that distinction be? I think we can uh, kind of boil down the uh, points that I just read, which are essentially, essentially that, that I really read the entirety of his argument for why the fetus isn't a person. And it's fairly typical for, you know, the pro-choice side. And, and we can kind of boil it down to two main ideas. Uh, the first being the argument that the fetus can't feel pain, that it's dishonest to argue that it feels pain, and secondly, to point out that the fetus is not fully developed. In fact, when quite young, is in fact quite undeveloped uh, in terms of the full physical systems which a human adult would have. So what about these pain and development? What can we say about these arguments if we're going to say that somehow, even if, yes, the fetus is a human organism, a living human organism, yet it's uh, somehow lacking in some essential quality, which we'll call personhood, which allows us then to kill it. Well, what about the inability to feel pain? The first thing we could note is that this is debatable. The second is that it is irrelevant. So, on to the first point, debatable. Uh, it's, it's actually surprisingly hard to work out uh, if an organism is feeling pain. In fact, it's interesting to, uh, as, I, as I've read, not just this book, but other discussions from uh, the pro-choice side, arguing that the fetus doesn't feel pain. Um, it reminds me actually a lot of a fascinating debate from about 100 years ago that many people don't, don't even know happened. But it was a debate over vivisection which was, for for hundreds of years, scientists were totally fine with literally chopping apart dogs, cats, birds, without anesthesia, um, dissecting them alive for scientific research. And their argument was, yes, they sure appear, they're reacting as if we're hurting them. But we all know that an animal really doesn't have the mental capacity to really feel pain. And so it's fine. There's no reason to feel guilty as I literally dissect alive this animal. Because after all, it's not a person. It doesn't feel pain. You know, how, how do you determine if a thing is feeling pain? If, if I'm feeling pain, I can tell you about it. But how, how do you, you know, looking at an organism, how do we work out if it can feel pain? Well, there's a couple things we can do. We can, first of all, look at the physical systems which would convey pain to you know, the mind. So the neurological uh, development uh, of this creature. Does it have the, the hardware for feeling pain? And then secondly, we can look at its reactions. Does it react in ways of jerking away from stimuli, of uh, you know, ex- uh, releasing stress hormones, uh, having its heartbeat increase, things like that that would again indicate pain? And it is true you know, for the very, very youngest uh, fetuses in the womb, uh, probably... Uh, well, certainly. I mean, when, if you go early enough, the uh, you know the, the the unborn child, the the fetus in the womb, is not going to be able to feel pain um, because it's just the hardware is not there. 
However, the, the capacity to feel pain most likely develops in the child far earlier than the pro-choice side would like us to believe. Um, in fact, by about eight weeks or so, the, uh, again, so much of the hardware for at least being able to feel uh, rudimentary kinds of pain, you know, the sort of pain that a simple animal would feel, at least, is in place. In fact, there's some recent studies to indicate uh, the pro-choice side used to argue that the fetus needed to have a cerebral cortex to be able to feel pain, which developed somewhat later. But in fact, new research suggests that fetuses actually process sensory input using different parts of their brain when they're very, very young in the womb. Uh, so, so we kind of just don't know. Uh, there's general consensus that by 20 weeks or so, uh, the fetus can definitely feel pain. Uh, it reacts to stimuli uh, that's painful by recoiling. Uh, we can detect the release of stress hormones. We can detect an increase in their heart rate when they feel painful stimuli. In fact, uh, when we have uh, in utero fetal surgery, which does happen, if there's some sort of you know uh, problem with the fetus, you can uh, do surgery on the fetus in the womb. And anesthesiologists now... Uh, they, they, they give anesthesia to the fetus by the time they reach this, this age because the fetus reacts uh, you know, by thrashing around in response to, to the surgery uh, if they're not anesthetized because they feel it, which again, all the hardware at that point, you know, the physical, you know, neurological components to feel pain are in place. And oh, by the way, it is worth noting that this is about a month uh, before that point at which Willie Parker no longer feels comfortable performing abortions. So somewhere, you know, from eight, let's say eight to 20 weeks, there is a developing capacity to feel pain and almost everybody pro-choice is going to be fine with dissecting, with killing in one way or another, vacuuming out piece by piece this human organism that's capable of feeling pain. But let's just say that the fetus can't, as it certainly can't, you know, in the very, very first few weeks, feel pain. Does it matter? <laughs> if I kill you in your sleep so you don't feel it, is that okay? If you're in a, you know, if you've been knocked unconscious, is it cool if I put a bullet through your brain? The capacity to feel pain, if, if we're killing something that can feel pain in the process, that does make it worse. You know, if you're, if, if you're going to be a murderer, we would rather you not torture the person before you murder them. Yes. So, so, so the ability of the victim to feel pain does add a, a additional level of depravity to the crime. But in what other realm do we say that it's fine if you kill a human being as long as you're not hurting them in the process? So ultimately, uh, again, it's debatable exactly when fetal pain begins to be felt. But what shouldn't be debatable is the fact that that's wholly irrelevant to the question of whether we should be allowed to kill that creature if indeed it is a living human organism. But what about the other argument, the other point, which is, well, it's, it's not fully developed. Um, I, I, when people make this argument, I, 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 I encourage you, if you hear people arguing along these lines, think to yourself, and if you have the opportunity, ask them. Say, are, are you arguing that the fetus is not a person, whatever that means, 
Or are you arguing that they're not an adult human being? And what, what, are, what are the arguments? Well, you know, their systems aren't fully developed. Uh, are they, as, as going back to Dr. Parker here, um, uh, earliest notable cardiac activity, undeveloped heart, rudimentary circulatory system. Well, well, well yes, they're not fully developed yet. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but babies aren't either. Uh, their their vocal skills, for example, leave something wanting. Uh, <laughs> their their control of their digestive system is somewhat somewhat undeveloped. Um, their minds are not yet fully developed. We do develop over time. But what does development have to do with personhood? What does it have to do with whether you're a living human organism? You know, if yes. The, the, the fetus in the womb is smaller. Yes, some of its systems are undeveloped or not even present at the very earliest stages, but what does that have to do with whether I can kill it? If you have a disabled person, a person who's born with parts of their body missing uh, or parts of their mind not working or somebody who later is injured, we don't say, well, yeah, you can go ahead and kill them because they're no longer all functioning. In fact, that's murder. Uh, there have been cases where you know, nurses in hospitals have killed patients who they just felt like you know, didn't have good quality of life. And they're, if they're caught, they're prosecuted for murder because it's still a living human being and you can't kill it, even if not all systems are go. The, the, the key question, I think, the, the key way to think about this and try to help the pro-choice person to think about it, if we think of it visually, I mean, I'll be real, I'll be honest, if, if, you, if you see pictures of the very, very, very earliest stages of fetal development, it does not look very human. I mean, it starts to look human quite quickly. Um, in fact, those little models that Dr. Parker was so indignant about are actually very helpful. Um, I've, I've seen seen some of the ones that uh, you know, pro-life people use, they're actually quite accurate, uh, very carefully, studiously designed to be accurate. Um, though, of course, a little bit larger um, in some cases. Um, but the, uh, you know, the details, the structure is, is accurate. Um, but, you know, very, very quickly, uh, even if at first the, uh, you know, the, the fetus doesn't look very human, um, it, does, it does start to look human very, very quickly, which is, again, the power of the uh, ultrasound, the sonogram. But here's the thing. Whether or not it looks human at the very beginning, the question is, what actually is it? if, If we go all the way to the moment of birth, let's go a couple minutes after, at that point, the child, everybody agrees, well, almost everybody, uh, except for uh, the very most advanced philosophers like Peter Singer, uh, who would argue that you should actually be able to kill the child for a month after birth, too, if you feel like that's necessary. Um, but anyway, put aside the absolutely morally perverse, basically everybody deci- agrees that you cannot kill the child at that point. In fact, when, for example, the abortionist Kermit Gosnell was uh, caught uh, snipping the spinal cords of uh, children who survived abortion attempts uh, to kill them, the nation was horrified and he was prosecuted successfully for murder. But let's rewind the tape a little bit. The child is now in the birth canal. 
unless you have, again, my my pro-choice friend's bizarre metaphysical idea about how uh, the first breath makes the child human, uh, what substantively has changed? Okay, now the child's back in the uterus. What has changed? If, if you perform a C-section, poof, there's the child. You can't kill it after all. Well, keep rewinding the tape. At what point do we reach a point where we can say, well, it's no, you know, it's, it, 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 before this point, it's not a human being. You know, five minutes later, I can't kill it. But now that we've crossed this threshold, uh, or before we cross this threshold, rather, uh, I can kill it. There's just no logical threshold, no logical step where you say this this is a thing which is a living organism. It has human DNA. It is a living human being, just smaller and less developed. That's the criteria that we use to determine whether it has a right to life or not. And it, it, it remains a living human organism from the moment at which the egg and the sperm come together. That's the point at which this embryo takes on the characteristics of life. And again, it is human life. And again, when I say life, I mean life of an organism. That is, it's not just biological matter anymore. It is a distinct separate organism. And if that's the case, then the answer to what is it for the fetus is it is a human life. The answer to what is it for a pregnancy is it is the precious God-given gift of a human life perhaps conceived under circumstances which are horrible or simply inconvenient, but nonetheless a human life. And just as we would not murder a toddler because he was conceived under inconvenient or horrible circumstances, if it is indeed a human life, then we cannot take it in the womb either, which means then that the answer to what is abortion is it is murder. And we cannot allow it not because we want to restrict the choices of women, but because we want to protect the lives of the unborn, both male and female. Now, that if, if that is the conclusion, which I think we have to come to, then it raises a question of how can the uh, somebody who is a professing Christian, like Dr. Billy Parker, like many others, why would they be okay with that? Why would Dr. Parker, as we see in this book, um, twist philosophy, twist science, twist ultimately the Bible to justify what seems plainly to be a egregious moral wrong? And as I said when we started this series, I think that's something that's very, very worth considering for some of the broader lessons that it can teach us about uh, among other things, failures in the American church to teach her people how to think well and how to think biblically. And so that's what I want to explore in our next episode, uh, is to look at how do you become so wrong on a question that deals with the very lives of unborn human beings. And we'll focus, of course, on Dr. Parker and on the path that he describes. But again, I think there will be broader implications as well. But all that for our next episode uh, in a few weeks.